The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. 1 Timothy chapter 3, our subject, uh, we're continuing to discuss the office of the pastor and the Baptist acrostic, and we're in the last T of the acrostic, which stands for the two offices of the church, the first being the office of the pastor and then the other, the office of the deacon. And in our text of 1 Timothy chapter 3 are given qualifications for the pastor's office. So if you'll look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and verse number 1, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well, his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. I'm drawn to that first statement in in chapter 1. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Good work must be attended by good men. And since we've learned that the pastor's office is of vital importance to the good of the church, we must find good men, men of outstanding character, to fill the office of the pastor. Now, obviously, as you're listening to me this evening, I'm the one who has to teach you this. I'm, I'm the pastor, but I have to have to teach you this. And so, in some ways, it might be a little bit of an embarrassing thing to do because I have to talk about me. And I am a man of outstanding character, as you well know. Uh, but I didn't want it to sound like I'm blowing a trumpet in the street before me as I do this. So I'm just going to let you make the determination. I'll tell you what the Scripture says, and then you determine from that uh, how you feel about uh, the pastor. Now, in the second verse, of course, we've covered some of this already, so we'll just briefly look at a little bit of a review here. But in the second verse, Paul begins a list of qualifications, and I've I've put these under the heading of the personal character of the pastor. Uh, Most of you have been with us since the beginning of the study, so we're not going to concern ourselves with parts 1, 2, and 3 of this outline, but we're taking up with uh, part number 4 this evening and the exposition of these qualifications that we have in verses 2 through 7. In our last discussion, we learned that the pastor must be blameless. And I explained that this word means that the pastor is to be above reproach, especially in the area of his sexual, con- of a sexual content, that uh, conduct rather, that the primary intent of this particular word is to say that there is to be no sexual impropriety in the life of a pastor, and that's always, always was an important point for Paul, as we noticed that last time, how there are so many scriptures where Paul talks about uh, the, the lifestyle of Christians, the holiness of Christians. And many of those passages start out with things about adultery, sexual situations, those type of 
sins are the ones that Paul almost always puts at the top of the list. And so certainly for a pastor, he has to be a man who uh, doesn't fall into this, this category of being someone that, that, it is, that you can like blame at his feet for his sexual conduct. Now Paul lived in a very highly charged sexual society. The Gentiles, the Greek and, Greek and Roman culture were very highly charged in that area. Sex was often a part of their religion with uh, both male and female prostitutes. And we have get an idea of why Paul would, would be so strong on this particular point. But we notice that in the next thing that he says, that we can see why this is all tied together. The, the next statement teaches that a pastor needs to be a one-woman man. That is, he's to be the husband of one wife. And that particular phrase refers to the dedication that he must have for his wife, that he only has eyes for her. He's not to, at, at Paul's time, wasn't to fall into the all-too-frequent uh, temptations of prostitutes that I mentioned just a moment ago in the temples, uh, and not to be tempted by women in his own congregation that were likewise exposed to the immoral lifestyle of that time. Solomon gave good advice when he said in Proverbs 5.15, Drink waters out of thine own cistern, and running waters out of thine own well. And also, in the 18th verse of Proverbs 5, he says, Let thy fountain be blessed, and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished with her love. And why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman, and embrace the bosom of a stranger? And that's really good advice, because there are pastors who have fallen into this temptation. It's especially characteristic of false prophets, as Peter and others said, they're often involved in sexual sins. Peter said they have eyes that are full of adultery. Last time we looked at that phrase closely, the husband of one wife, and we did that in order to discuss the true meaning of it rather than the often misinterpretations of it. And what we learned was that uh, this particular phrase doesn't talk about polygamy. It doesn't actually speak about divorce. It's not about being a widower. It says nothing at all about remarriage. I believe those things are considered in other places by Scripture or by inference. But in this particular passage, that phrase, husband of one wife, simply refers to the man's dedication to his wife, that he's to love his wife and be devoted to her only. So if a pastor has a wife, which we also discussed, it's not necessary as a qualification for the pastorate, but if he does have a wife, uh, his desire is to be for her alone. And that's important because... Pastors will be involved in counseling sessions where they have to deal with women one-on-one. -on -one. And so he has to be a man that's sexually pure in his thoughts and his actions. For sure, you don't want to put a man into the office that's had problems in the past. Uh, so he's got to be weighed in this particular area to make sure that he uh, thinks the right way, does the right thing in that kind of conduct. So we, d we discussed the other aspects of that phrase as well in detail. So we'll just move on from that now and, and we'll look at the next character trait. Next, thirdly, a pastor must be temperate. The text uses the terms vigilant and sober. Vigilance has to do with his carefulness, with his watchfulness, so that he is a man that takes care of business in a straightforward and circumspect, diligent way. He's even-headed, cool-handed, thoughtful in all of his actions. And we can combine this word sober 
which means, uh, with that, which means that he is to be sound in judgment. His judgment should be good in all areas of his life because not only does he deal with the church, but he also deals with his own family. And so his judgment must be good there. I even think that it includes a, a pastor's regard for his own body. He has to be a good example with his own body. Temperance includes his food, his drink, and uh, how he takes care of himself. Now, if you, if you would indulge me for just a minute, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here maybe and, and pick a bone here that bothers me a little bit. A pastor has to be wise about his health and his personal appearance. Now, many, many people don't think that a pastor does very much. Uh, we don't, m- most pastors, I, I don't think, are involved in hard physical labor, and so people think that because, well, you're not swinging a hammer or something like that, digging ditches or whatever, you must not do very much, so pastors don't have much to do. Well, there isn't much physical labor that's involved. Pastoral work is a rather sedentary thing in many ways. And so if you're going to get exercise, you've got to add that to your routine. So just to give you an idea what I do, uh, on most days I I get up at 5 a.m. I'm uh, at work already at 5.30. And for several hours I, I I will study for sermons and write sermons I sit in front of a computer surrounded uh, by books and papers and I'll stay in that position for nearly 8 to 10 hours while I'm doing that. And uh, Eric, actually, he's not in here. He's in the, on the other side with the kids. But Eric has been very good. Oh, no, is he in here? Oh, there he is back there. Eric has been very good to me in this, uh, in this area. Uh, he, he does all this kind of thing at work where he works. And uh, so he provided me with a desk that raises to standing height so that I can stand up while I'm doing my work and that's really helped my back a a great deal. But over the years of this uh, constant sitting I gained a lot of weight and that was beginning to affect my health. My back was getting worse all of the time so I changed my work hours so that I would have time to take afternoon walks. And so if you drive by Taylor Mountain late in the afternoon or if you're over at Annadale and you happen to see my car sitting in one of those two places, it's not because I've taken the day off. Because uh, by the time I get there, we're, you know, we've already put in about an 8 to a 10-hour work day before we even get there. So I've been thinking about this, this, this whole issue of weight problems quite a bit. And a few years ago, I had a, an interesting conversation with someone about overweight preachers. Uh, I was visiting in a prison, and I was talking with an inmate about opportunities that the prison allowed for them to have uh, someone come in to hold services, to preach to them, preaching of the word. And this inmate was telling me about uh, a Baptist preacher who was from a nearby church, and he would come to the prison and he would hold services. And this, this man's comments were quite revealing because he said the pastor would just rail on and on about sin and about how they should repent that he would talk about their crimes and he would speak of their lifestyle, about their dress and their habits, and he would preach about drugs and alcohol and abusing their bodies. He talked with them about living a holy life and being a good example before other people, and he taught them that it's possible to do all those things while they were in prison. But the really interesting thing about what he said to me was this. He said, you know something? That preacher was so big and fat that he could hardly breathe. Doesn't the Bible say something about gluttony? 
And I thought about that, and I thought, now that's kind of a peculiar thing for someone to say that they would notice that. When is the last time that you heard anybody preach about gluttony? Anybody raise your hand and say, you've heard a recent sermon on gluttony? You did? Oh, oh, I'm going to tell you something about it, though. Okay. Uh, he was right about that. You know, there are preachers that are, that are bombastic about long hair and short skirts and tattoos and smoking and dancing and, and all those kinds of things. And there they are in the pulpit in a shirt that barely stretches over their stomach, a tie that gently folds over the hump, and it's not long enough to reach their belly button. And when they stand up, they can't see their shoes because that belly's in the way. Now, I think it's interesting, I think, because Paul had this in mind, too, uh, that gluttony was another sin that was prevalent in the Greco-Roman culture. They said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now, that saying is actually a combination of two scriptures that you find in the Old Testament, and it may well have been adopted for their use among the Epicureans back at the time of Paul. But we have these two scriptures, one in Ecclesiastes that says, then I commended mirth, because a man hath no better thing under the sun than to eat and to drink and to be merry. Isaiah 22, verse 13, And behold, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. Now, I think it's also interesting that preachers can talk about gluttony, and gluttony is or they could be guilty of this, gluttony is one of the seven deadly sins. Now, if you consider to be one of those. Now, if you look at that in Proverbs, uh, Proverbs chapter 6, it lists seven abominable sins in that passage, and you'll notice that gluttony is not one of them. But most commentators will tell you that that is by no means an exhaustive list. Of course, there are other things that are abomination to God. And so you just go a little bit further, and you read in Proverbs 23, verse number 21, for the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe the man with rags. Now, the ancients were so familiar with this particular problem that they incorporated gluttony into their list of deadly sins. And the interesting thing here is that secular society recognizes that, and it holds it against a person along with all the other vices that they do. Later on in the morning services, as we talk about the Seventh Commandment, it might surprise you to find that gluttony is also considered under the Seventh Commandment. I'll show you that when we get to that a little bit later on in that study. But my point here is that a preacher has no business being caught in that kind of a predicament. Whether it's me or anyone else, it's at best hypocritical to preach against other sins when those words are coming out of a body that's a living example of one of the worst things that the Bible says that you can do. So we've got to be careful about how we're condemning people about sin when we're guilty of, of sins ourselves. As they say, people who live in glass houses don't want to throw stones. Now, I'm not talking here about somebody who has a medical condition. Because of that, they've got a problem. I'm speaking here of somebody that has, just has plain old fork and mouth disease. That's their problem. <laughs> So that's my little rant here on, on that particular point. Preachers are examples, so they need to watch themselves. So watch yourself. Don't be so big that you can't miss yourself, but watch yourself. Uh, don't give others an occasion to stumble. Now, going back to the word sober again, 
Now, this is a word that re- refers to prudence. Sober does not mean not to be a drunk. Now, we'll get into that. It means to be of sound mind. It means to take the Word of God seriously and not be frivolous in handling the Word. And this is really why I don't care a whole lot for jokesters in the pulpit. Now, I think it's all right to say something humorous when you're in the pulpit. There's nothing wrong with that. But the pulpit's not a place for a stand-up comedian. And I've known preachers whose jokes last a lot longer than their sermons. People go out and they don't remember a thing that was said in the sermon, but they got a few jokes that they can carry with them. And it ought not to be that way. We need to be sober about what we teach. We need to consider the seriousness of what we're doing. A pastor also has to be well-reasoned. And I mean that his doctrinal positions need to be very clearly thought out. A pastor should be able to understand his own preaching. And you might think, well, why would you say that? That seems such an obvious thing. A pastor should understand his own preaching. But do you realize there are a lot of people, a lot of preachers that stand in pulpits that have heard a doctrine from somebody and they adopt it as their own and they have no idea how they would defend it. They just heard that somebody said it. They haven't studied it out. You know, I I promise you that I, I would love to sit down with many to discuss the doctrines of grace because I think that there are a lot of ignorant arguments that are made about it. I've heard many dishonest and disingenuous treatments of those particular doctrines. So people sit and they hear these things from the pulpit and they think that, wow, the pastor is a great defender of the faith. But sit that man down with somebody who knows what they're talking about and then see how things go. And then I've also seen preachers do this. They will adopt fad doctrines. Somebody comes up with a novel interpretation of Scripture, and so they very quickly jump on that bandwagon, and they ride that out until later on they're proven to be totally foolish. See, the problem is not using good judgment. They didn't care to study and discern properly. They desire to be innovative, not necessarily right. And we have a lot of that today. You know, I mentioned, uh, I think it was in our forum class, I'm not sure I mentioned it here before, but Andy Stanley... I don't know if you heard of him or not, but uh, Andy Stanley found himself defending his sermons when he told his congregation, and there's a, lot, there's a background story to this, but he told his congregation that you don't really need to believe in Jesus because the Bible says so. Um, as I said, there's a lot of background to that, but whatever he meant by that, that statement, as clever as it might have sounded, it sent a shockwave through his congregation and his risque interpretation of that turned on him and for the past several weeks and months he's been defending that statement trying to make it sound good now fanciful interpretations are not smart if you come up with something that nobody's ever thought of well they probably did actually think of it but then they discarded it as being totally stupid and what happens is sometimes it takes stupid a while to catch up So we've had 2,000 years of of preaching. We have books that are written by great men of God. Somebody asked me one time about using commentaries. Is it wrong to use a commentary for a pastor to use one when he studies? And obviously they say, well, men wrote commentaries, not God. Well, I think that we ought not to use the wrong commentaries, but I think that a, a person would be a complete fool if he thinks that he's 
too smart and too spiritual and more gifted and more Holy Spirit-inspired than many of the writers of these good books that we have that have learned these things in past Christian history. I think we ought to read what great servants have written about the Word of God. And here's the fact. All of us are students of the Word. Even the pastor is a student of the Word. And the problem is, I don't get preached to a lot. I'm going to go to a conference next month and I'll get some preaching. I don't get preached to a lot. So where do I get my preaching? Well, I go and I read good commentaries. I, I read what men of God had said. Many of those are written by preachers. And I read their sermons and I learn from those sermons just like you would learn from me. So... To say that a preacher shouldn't use a commentary would be just about the same as saying, well, a preacher should never listen to a sermon. He knows everything he needs to know. Well, that wouldn't be true. Now, I love to read commentaries because what I prefer to do is to read the Scripture, form an opinion about what I've read, and then go and check and see if there's somebody who confirms that. Am, am I thinking in the right direction? Sometimes I find out that I'm not. And so I go back and I reevaluate, I look at things again, maybe there's something that I missed, I study the thing out, but I reevaluate positions and then I come to a consensus of opinion by reading these different uh, commentaries, what people have to say. And I think that you would probably prefer a preacher who is searching for orthodoxy rather than one who has fly-by-the-seat-of-pants theology. I think that's better for you. Now let's move on. Uh, to the next one, a pastor must be, fourthly, gentlemanly. This is the word I've chosen, gentlemanly. He's to be a man of good behavior. That's another interesting word, I think, uh, phrase here, good behavior, because um, there are many commentators who relate this specifically to a way that a person dresses. They, they consider dress to be a behavioral attitude. Some of you maybe have seen uh, a television show that, that used to be on called Downton Abbey, uh, a television show that came from Britain. It's a story of an aristocratic family in Victorian England, and I'm not recommending that you watch the series. But if you wanted to learn something about uh, dress and manners and formality uh, that, uh, in that particular era, it's kind of eye-opening. They, they say that this show was, was very heavily researched to make sure that they accurately reflect, reflected how that these people lived in, in high society Victorian England. So I read an article about it, and uh, one thing that they were very careful to cover up was the religious life of people during that period. And when I talk about Victorian England, we're talking about the period of uh, Charles Spurgeon, for instance, um, uh, other great preachers at that time in England and other places. And, and uh, they, they tried to cover up the religious life of people as if there really wasn't very much religion for those people at that time. Most people weren't religious. Of course, they were totally wrong about that. That is a cover-up. But the religion, the, the, the producers covered up religion because they want to deal with the subject, because they knew that they would run into some attitudes, some things that are taught in the Bible that they didn't want to deal with. And what they were interested in doing was pushing forward their own agenda of some modern things that they wanted to put into that. But as far as the other things, as far as uh, the dress issues and the mannerisms and giving you a look at Victorian England 
and the lifestyles of the, of the aristocrats at that time, they could show you what it was like, how people were ladylike, how the men were gentlemanly, and how there was a protocol for that. And they never went against those protocols. They wouldn't deviate from that. Well, I think the same thing can apply uh, uh, in the Bible about decorum in our worship. That there's a way for us to act. There are behavioral patterns that we ought to use that are godly things. There, there's a certain way that we ought to dress because I think that's a part of our behavior. And commentators point that out. James said that we ought not to be more respectful of the person who, who uh, dresses well than the poor. We ought not to respect the one who dresses well more than the poor if the poor can't afford it. But by no means does he say that everybody ought to dress in rags, and that would be fine. That's not what he means. Now, we can deal with that part of it some other time, but this part I want to deal with now, since we're on this subject, and that is, what about the pastor? Is there a good way for a pastor to dress when he goes into the pulpit? Recently, we had a visitor who went out on what, Sunday morning and said to me as she was going out, she said, you know, it's really nice to be able to go to a church where the pastor still wears a suit and tie. Because the popular thing is what? Show up in blue jeans and a t-shirt. And that's the way the pastor preaches from the pulpit. And the idea is, well, we, we, we want to make church like an everyday activity. We want everybody to be comfortable. It's like we're going to work. We're going to the park, we're going to a ball game, we're going to the beach. But when we come to worship the Lord, corporate worship is not an everyday activity. And preaching a sermon from God's holy word is not the same as pitching a ball to home plate. Now I know often you, often you tell me that my sermons hit it out of the park. But uh, I don't want to look like I just came out of the dugout though, alright? I think the pulpit deserves more respect. It deserves more respect than a man to come up here in flip-flops. We need to be gentlemen. I think that there should be some formality of some sort, I think, that would separate the pulpit from everyday activities. I think that you need to see something special about what I do. And I want to reflect that in the way that I dress. I told you uh, some time ago about a church I visited back in October when I was on vacation. Uh, this was in, in uh, where was I? Mississippi. I was in Mississippi. And uh, it was just a beautiful place, an old, an old uh, colonial church. Uh, the architecture was colonial, stained glass windows, high ceilings, marvelous acoustics in the place. And I really felt bad when I went up and introduced myself to the pastor I introduced myself as a fellow pastor, but I was in my vacation clothes. I mean, I didn't have anything else. I wanted to go to church, and I was in my vacation clothes, and I just felt kind of bad because I, I just didn't feel like I was dressed for the occasion. So I sat down in the congregation, and all around me are these men that are in suits, and I felt like the guy who just didn't know any better about where he was. Now, I, I'm not going to make this a law that says that everybody needs to wear a suit to church. Wearing a suit does not make me holier than you. That's not what this is about. Wearing the suit doesn't make you holy. I respect the office. That's why I wear a suit when I preach. I respect the office. I think that I, uh, when I do this, I show respect for the God that I serve. I don't feel right without this. 
A suit does not make the message better. If it did, then I'd save all the money that I could and buy the most expensive suits that I could in order to make my messages good. I wish that that's all you had to do because I've heard a lot of preachers, I'd love to see them in a better suit. Believe me, I would. So I have some variations of thought about this. Uh, I want you to see me as different. I want you to be able to pick me out of the crowd and say the pastor's the one over there that's wearing a suit and a tie. There's something about that, isn't there? This is, we're raised this way, aren't we? The way that you dress has a lot to say about the occasion that you're at, the respect that you have for it. It's dignified and respectful. Good manners are associated with the way that we dress. I, I think that when Paul wrote about qualifications here, there's nothing here that's superfluous. He's not writing anything here just to fill up space. No, he showed the people there's something different about leaders. Albert Barnes made this comment. He said, He should not do violence to the usages of refined intercourse, nor be unfit to appear respectably in the most refined circles of society. A minister of the gospel should be a finished gentleman in his manners, and there is no excuse for him if he is not. His religion, if he has any, is adapted to make him such. I've often wondered, could you make Barnes' comment fit with a polo shirt and a grungy pair of jeans? I don't think that you can. Are high-top tennis shoes, is, is that the article, an article of refined society? Oh, in the 19th century, they had a much, much different picture of a pastor as compared to how the modern pulpit sees it. I, I would say this as well, that dress is emblematic of many changes that have taken place in the church. The doctrine of 19th century Baptist glorified God. Baptists today are more, more concerned about making people comfortable. And that's why they never preach about the holiness of God. Uh, many do, but there are many that don't. Go to a church and where do, you, where do you hear them talking about sin anymore? Where do you hear them talking about righteousness and holiness? Well, a lot of that's backed up by changes that people made and just simple things like the way that people dress. It's just, it's a downgrade. So I, I believe that what we ought to do is look into the Scriptures and find where are there precedents that are set for the way that we dress. I think a good place for us to go would be into the Old Testament. We could look at the articles of clothing that the Old Testament priest wore. They were different in the way that they dressed. The high priest... Um, had holiness in his mind as he put on all of his articles of clothing. In fact, everything that he wore was a picture in one way or another of Jesus Christ. All of it was a reflection upon Christ. So he wore white linen breeches, and that represented the righteousness of Christ. He wore a blue ephod, which was the outer coat that he wore, which represented Christ in heaven. He had bells on the fringe of that ephod that always rang when he walked, and that was symbolic of Christ's continual intercession for his people. Everything that he put on, the hat that he wore, had a band, a golden band on it that said, Holiness unto the Lord. So every article of clothing that he put on was for the occasion. It said something about Christ. Solomon's servants were the same way. Uh, everyone that he placed into service had to be dressed for the occasion. When the Queen of Sheba came to visit, she saw that and she was impressed by the decorum of Solomon's servants. She could see how that God had blessed him by looking at all the things that Solomon did in the worship of his God. 
And so what he did was a reflection of the God that he served. Now, the, the New Testament doesn't describe a particular way that a pastor ought to dress. There's no design for a particular robe that a pastor wears. There are no particular vestments for us. The New Testament doesn't talk about that. It certainly doesn't say that what we ought to do is wear the same types of garments that the Old, priest, uh, the Old Testament priests wore. But the idea that there is a, is a difference, that idea remains. And I believe that the New Testament w- would show us that, uh, and in this passage, would, would show us that the pastor ought to wear a type of clothing that would reflect the formality of a gentleman. So I don't wear robes. I don't have a pointed hat. There's no scapular that I wear that has, that's endowed with any priestly uh, powers. There's no mandate for all of those superstitions that people have. But I think there is a mandate for reverence for the office of the pastor. Now, the world certainly recognizes those differences. I mean, you, you, you show up in, um, uh, to a place where you're supposed to have formal, uh, formal attire, like a black tie affair, show up in cutoffs and see what happens. It, it's just not going to work. So I think this is the way that we approach the office. Uh, I don't approach it casually because I'm not casual about what I do. I, I believe that we need to be serious about it. I'm not the ordinary guy in the pew. The pastor of the church is a different person. Now, one more comment on this point. Uh, I mentioned this. I need to hurry for you. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Those of you who are as old as I am uh, remember when Jimmy Carter was the president. And uh, Carter was a peanut farmer from Georgia, uh, not known to be high society, and perhaps it was his uh, earthiness and the fact that he wasn't a Washington insider that uh, made him have so much appeal to people. But Carter was a good old boy. Um, Any of you remember that he had a brother by the name of Billy? Yeah, sure, okay. Billy was a stereotypical southerner, sat on the porch and drank beer all day. And that's, that's pretty much the idea that people had. Well, Carter brought that kind of informality to the White House, and he used to have these uh, televised talks called fireside chats where he would address the country, and he wore, he wore a sweater. When he was in the, uh, the White House, he was known for dressing down. He would wear blue jeans, uh, often wear blue jeans, and uh, White House dinners were not always formal affairs. Uh, I, you could describe him as a goober in a castle. Was, was what he was. But then, thankfully, when uh, Ronald Reagan, Reagan spanked him in the 1980 election, that uh, Reagan moved into the White House where people apparently were still eating off paper plates on the floor, and, and the staff was asked, what is the big difference between Carter and Reagan? And the staff said, dignity. That Reagan restored dignity to the White House. It was formal and elegant again. So what Reagan did was bring back the culture of a gentleman. Why did he do that? Because he thought the office demanded it. He, he thought the presidency was a big, important job. That the world looks at America and who represents us, our leader who represents us, notwithstanding all the problems that we have right now, but uh, America looks at us and they judge us a lot by our leader, don't they? What he's like. Well, Carter did not portray strength. The sweater did not portray strength. And so he was perceived by other governments as being weak and indecisive. Now, can we see how that 
same attitude can be reflected in the pulpit? Is the pastor fit enough to compare to a corporate CEO? Or is he far beneath that? Is he, you know, I, I like to think, well, my office is better than the office of a bank president. My office is better than the president of the United States. So look and act the part. Be a gentleman. As Barnes said, there's no excuse for a pastor not to be a finished gentleman in his manners. Now let's not carry it too far. I don't want you to test me on this. I eat with only one fork. I don't know which side of the plate the napkin goes on. But you're not going to mistake me for a corncob smoking, corncob pipe smoking southerner in the pulpit. And I'm not making fun of southerners. I'm a southerner. Let me go on. Uh, I don't want to make a long exposition of all these. I don't think that's necessary. So just let me, just let me uh, tackle one more here. I don't actually even have a place, a blank on your listening sheet for this one, so you can add a little bit later. But to finish out, uh, uh, finish out this evening's message, you, you'll also see that hospitality is on this list. Hospitality means to be welcoming to strangers. All Christians ought to be hospitable. A pastor ought to be. Uh, to make a modern application of this term, you need to be welcoming to strangers that come and visit our services. Speak to visitors. Make them feel welcome. You know, a visitor comes to our services, they, they often feel like they're under a microscope. So what you want to do with the visitor is to relax them, make them feel at home. We don't make visitors stand and identify themselves. We don't make them wear a badge with their name on it. When Gary and I were in Israel, this was one of the things that we were supposed to do on our tour. We were supposed to wear a badge that had our name on it so they'd know who you were. And Gary will tell you, I absolutely refused to wear that badge. I wouldn't put my name on there. I didn't like that. So I'm not going to ask a visitor to do that. When I go to the Shepherds Conference in a, another month or so, they make you wear a card around your neck. Uh, you know, I forget what you call the thing. You know, you, you wear it around, it's got your, your name on it. And you have to have that to get in. But most of the time when I'm walking around, I stuff that down inside my coat. Because what people do is they come up real close. And they bend over and squint to see who you are, what your name is. And I'm like, get off of me. Just get away. I don't like those kinds of things. So visitors can feel awkward. They can feel awkward when they come into service. Make it easy on them. Be like Julie. Where's Ju There's Julie. Julie's my go-to person. When, when we have a visitor, I say, Julie, I need you to go and find out who that is. So uh, in five minutes... She'll come back, she'll have a name, a resume, and Ancestry.com family tree, a financial application. She'll have all of that. Don't make a visitor feel, what are you doing here? Why are you here? No, make them feel welcome. Now, just a comment here on what hospitality meant to people in the ancient world. What's hospitality to Paul? Well, in his day... They didn't have hotel chains. When somebody would go and travel, visit another place, nobody booked on Expedia. And so you, you would go into a town, a person would go into town, and one of the first places they would go is head to the town square. And people would see strangers in the town square, and they would invite them to come to their homes, and they would lodge strangers. This is what Paul's talking about here. And if that didn't happen, then a stranger would have to spend the night in the street. And then when he wrote his review on travel 
uh, Travelocity or, uh, you know, um, what's that other one? I can't remember the name of it. But when he writes his review, he gives that town one star, not four. So Paul would say, you need to use hospitality. And if a Christian wouldn't do that, if he wouldn't invite the stranger in, that made him worse than the heathen. This was practiced all the way back in, in ancient times, going back almost to the beginning of the Bible. And so Paul would teach us that as Christians, we are to acquit ourselves much better than the world would. So we want to be hospital peop- hospitable people. That's, that's a virtue. Now, we don't show that same type of hospitality today, and we don't do that for obvious reasons. You could fill up your house every night with homeless people. And as attractive as that might sound to you, you probably don't want to do it. And social agencies would tell you, no, you ought not to do that. So we have to show hospitality in other ways. Now, relating that to the church, um, it was common for us in the past that when we had visiting preachers, for, for instance, visiting speakers, that we would put them up in a member's home. We still do that sometimes. The Kaczynskis are very good about that. Uh, they have put up Brother Tilly in their home for a couple of, uh, couple of occasions, a couple of years, and he always has very, very good things to say about them. Uh, and when I was young, we used to do this. And, and growing up in a pastor's home, we always had preachers staying with us. I remember a particular pastor who came, and uh, he went to go to the same school where my dad went to school. And... Uh, he brought his family with him, but they didn't have any money. And so my dad said, well, just come and stay with us. I know what my dad intended by that, just come and stay with us. And they did. And they stayed, and they stayed, and they stayed, and they stayed. You can also wear out your welcome. So be careful about that. But we don't do this any longer. We usually don't put up, not very often, we don't put up visitors, uh, visiting speakers in homes very often. There's a good reason for that, because people, sometimes people don't feel comfortable about it. I don't feel comfortable staying with strangers. Uh, even my own family sometimes, I don't feel comfortable staying with them. So we, we don't do that very often. But I do remember a time when we assigned preachers to, to homes, and we wouldn't always know what that preacher would find when he got to that home. All homes are not created equal. Did you know that? So we didn't know exactly what he would find. We had a visiting missionary a few years ago who came, and it, it's always our practice now to put a missionary in a hotel room and a preacher in a hotel room. And this missionary had been all over the country. and He'd been staying in many, many different places, many different homes, and he was grateful for all the people that had uh, been hospitable to him, and, and there was no complaint there. But when he found out that we were offering a hotel room, it was like Christmas. I mean, this was the greatest thing I ever heard. And he said, That's the, said, that was the nicest place I stayed in the whole time that I was out traveling. He said, because I had some privacy. But we were being hospitable. We offer that nice hotel room. When I, when I first became pastor, uh, I wasn't too very, too very much acquainted with uh, hotels in Roner Park. So we put up a, a visiting preacher in a hotel. I didn't really know anything about it, but evidently it was a pretty seamy place. And I, and I don't know, he might have woke up with fleas or something, but he didn't like it at all, so we've got to be careful about that. But, but hospitality, that's, that's um, important. Different in Paul's time, but we still need to be hospitable today. A pastor has to be given to hospitality. And when Paul talked about it, he meant, you need to make a serious commitment here. And to him, a, a, to a Christian then, when he says, you need to be hospitable, that meant... Somebody's going to be staying at your house. 
And you need to take good care of them. And you need to feed them. And not only them, but you've got to take care of their animals too. Make sure they got a place to sleep. Camels and donkeys, make sure they got a place. It's all the time we have for tonight. Now, you might think I said some things that I ought not to say. Talk about gluttony, uh, dress issues, ignorant preachers and things like that. But I'm the pastor. And if I don't say them, who's going to say them? Who's going to tell you? So I'm interested in telling you what the Bible means. If it makes me popular, okay. If it doesn't, you still know what the Bible means. Is that good enough? Take care of you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the blessings that you give and the opportunity to look into your word. And Lord, every part of it is important. Every single thing, every verse that we could read, there's a meaning there that we need to find out and we need to apply in the way that your word tells us to apply it. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ and the salvation that we have from sins. Bless our people tonight and we just give you the praise for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org